looks like we piqued your interest in the hideout. First of all, let me tell you what the hideout is not. The hideout is not for hustlers, for grinders, or for people who are looking for a shortcut to what the world calls success. The hideout is about growing as men, creating lifelong friendships, and having the time of our lives. Are you ready to tap in to the endless source that will take you from success to significance? The hideout is two and a half days of hiking, biking, and doing the little things that it takes to create lifelong friendships. I find that joy is nothing more than falling in love with your current circumstances and allowing magic to happen. And that's when we see growth in every area of your life. Have you accomplished your goals professionally and financially and you still thirst for something more? Has success in these areas come at the expense of far more valuable things like your family, your children, and your relationships? Alignment in business strategic partnerships, and joint ventures all come from true relationships. The Hideout is designed to get to know people before you'll ever need them. This is not your typical mastermind. The Hideout is focused on the one thing that will fuel everything, joy. And when joy is overflowing in your life, you'll find growth in your marriage, your relationships, and oh yeah, your business. Welcome to the Kelly Cardenas Podcast, where attitude is everything. On today's show, what I was trying to think of is the least amount of words that I could say that have the most amount of power to introduce this man, because when you guys get a chance to be able to hear his voice, you see his face, you feel his presence, I tell you, he comes in like a tidal wave into the room. We got a chance to be able to talk before we started recording, and it was like we've been friends for years and years, and I don't know what it is about this man. I'm going to find out. But there is a way that he makes you feel like you are the greatest person in the world. Like I hopped on and there was no start. There was no like little sputter, first gear, second gear. It was seventh gear, me feeling like the greatest human of all time. And it wasn't anything that he said. It was the way that he looked at me, the way that he was present, and the way that he connects with people. So there's no... Um, no mystery why he's one of the top performance coaches, uh, performance coaches in the world. No uh, mystery to me why Success uh, Enterprises named him as the president of their company. And he's going to be the face taking them forward. And it is going to be a bright, bright, bright future. Those are just a couple of things on top of being one of the top speakers in the world and being a best-selling author and everything else that I could list for the next half an hour. But I just want to introduce you to probably one of the most impactful people that I've met in three minutes, Mr. Jarek Robbins. Thank you so much for being on the show and welcome, welcome, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. I'm, I'm going to keep that intro. I like that one. I'm going to play it before I speak in other places now. <laughs> so, Jarek, help, help me with this, man. man. You made me feel like, and I didn't even say this to you, but before we started recording, you made me feel like I was so important. Is this intentional? Is this something that you learned? Is this something that you crafted? Or am I just that special? You are that special. Let's start there. Um, there's a few things. I remember uh, something stood out. I was reading a book, and the book is called Finding Your Second Mountain. And it describes that oftentimes our first mountain in life is focused on what we can get from life. 
And so we hike and hike and hike and hike and consume, 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 consume. And at some point, either we get to the peak of the mountain and we realize all it is is a thin air and a nice view. And it's nice, but it's not going to keep us happy and satisfied and, and fulfilled and joyful for the rest of our lives. It's nice for the moment, but we know it's not going to last. Or on the hike up the mountain, something happens that knocks us off the first mountain. A family member dies, a health issue. I remember I had malaria and was told I had six days left to live at one point when I was 20 volunteering in Africa. Like something happens that just swipes you off that first mountain and you fall into what he called the valley of despair, which made me laugh. I was like, dum, 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 <laughs> the, the sound that needs to go with that title. Um, but it's a time in life where you start to question, who am I? Why am I really here? What's the purpose of life? If I only had six days left to live, which is what the doctor told me, how would I want to live? How would each day of my life be? Who would I want to share with? Who, I, who would I want to support? Who I want to love on? How would I want to feel? Like you start to describe that. And then what lands up happening is at some point you're able to answer yes to the following three questions. Am I enough? Am I loved enough? And do I have enough? Am I enough? Do I, am I loved enough? And do I have enough? And when you can say yes to those three things, you start to discover what the author termed your second mountain. And your second mountain becomes about your journey to what you can give back to life. And so what I've learned is I've had lots of stuff that landed on my first mountain that was super exciting. Got a gold medal from the United States Congress when I was young, went and traveled the world on a cruise ship, went all the way around the globe, stopped in 10 different countries, went and lived in a village in Africa, volunteered. Um, you know, I worked hard, graduated from school. I was one of the first people in my direct family to graduate from college. And, and, and those things were all like, check, check, check. Um, got hired as a speaker to speak all over the world, built programs that we, we now have clients in a hundred and, uh, what is it? 162 or 63 countries around the world. And I'm like, that's amazing. I've only been to like 30. <laughs> I don't know where the other 130 country people found me. Um, but all those things were kind of first mountain checks. And I remember when I was really young, I always wanted to figure out how do I touch millions of people's lives? And somewhere along the road, we were doing it. But again, it was like getting to that top of the mountain. I remember we had a week where something we wrote went out and had over a million impressions in a week. And I was like, wow. But nothing really changed. I remember, you know, when we finally made a million dollars and we were like, wow. And then nothing really changed. <laughs> and then like, it just kept feeling like it's a nice view and thin air, but it wasn't it, it wasn't doing it. And I had that moment, that valley of despair, where you just sit there and kind of wonder if this is all that life is, like, now what? Now what do you do? And the, the answer to that question was inner work. Um, there's another book called Deep Work. Cal Newton, he talks about some of the most prolific ahas, discoveries, or insights that have been discovered throughout history are when people take time and create space to actually think through stuff. Now, I know that's like, 
mind blowing for most. Um, but for most people, sitting in silence with themselves is one of the scariest things they'd ever attempt to do in their life because they don't want to hear the conversation going on in their own head. They are uncomfortable dealing with themselves. Therefore, they eat themselves, drink themselves, party themselves, distract themselves so that they don't have to deal with themselves, which means they either don't feel like they are enough, they don't feel like they have enough, or they don't feel like they're loved enough. And that judgment creates so much pain and uncertainty that it's messy. It's very messy. And so I went and I believe when I find an area in my life that feels messy, I step right into it. I go, you know what? I'm going to go spend time right there. Why? Because it's messy. And I don't, I don't know why it's messy, but I want to find out why it's messy. I went and spent um, seven days with a group of monks on my 24th birthday in Fiji. And we went through this whole oneness process. And my gosh, I had a lot of stuff, just stuff that I had to work through and think through and feel through and, and navigate. And the better I got, at working through my own stuff, the more space that created where it was no longer about me. Now, everything I've just told you represents a lot of the journey on that first mountain. And I remember when it got to a point where I sat down and I, I made a bucket list. I said, what's everything I want to do in my life as a single man before I decide to share my life with someone else? And I did everything on the list. Everything I could think of that I wanted to do as a single person, I did. And then a moment hit where I said, wow, there's nothing else in my lifetime I want to do as a single person. All the other dreams, all the other desires, all the other aspirations are things that require me to find someone to share it with. And I remember thinking, ooh, I'm ready. I'm ready to find someone to share this all with. Now, side topic on relationships. If you go to a relationship to try to get something, mm -hmm. at some point you will drain all of that out of the relationship and now you'll have to go somewhere else in your life to find it. If you go to your relationship to share, the only reason the relationship would fall apart is because you chose to stop sharing for some reason. And so I sat down and I'd finally gotten to a place that I checked everything off my, my single man bucket list. And I said, I'm ready to share. I'm ready to share every moment of my life moving forward with someone who values, honors, and is excited about all the things I dream of sharing with them. And I heard it said, if you really want a relationship to flourish, find someone who cherishes the things you most want to share with them and find someone that you cherish the things they most want to share with you. And so I spent five years studying relationships, five years getting clear on what I most wanted to share, five years getting clear on what I most wanted to cherish. And then eventually on a rooftop in San Diego, I met my wife. And what's interesting is the introduction we had was a friend grabbed her by the wrist, pulled her across, and said, Jarrett, this is Amanda. She loves to travel. She used to live in Asia somewhere, and she volunteers a lot. She goes, Amanda, this is Jarek. He loves to travel. He used to live in Africa somewhere, and he volunteers a lot. Anyways, you two have fun. And then she walked away. And we kind of looked at each other. And in San Diego, when people say they travel, 
it usually means Vegas, Mexico, San Francisco, and maybe Hawaii if they're super crazy. Um, they don't go far. <laughs> so I looked at my wife at the time we were just meeting and I said, well, where have you traveled to? And, and she went on sharing with me how she used to live in Thailand and she went to school at Chula Longkorn, which is like their version of Harvard over there. Um, she was studying in, in China for a little bit, doing some, some uh, experiential work with major companies. Then she lived in Bali for a while. And I was like, wow, she really travels. She goes, what about you? And I was like, well, I was living in a village in Africa, took a trip around the world. And, and she was like, wow. And four and a half hours later, I started to feel hungry. And I remember I looked at her, I'm like, are you hungry? <laughs> She's like, yeah, like, okay, let's go get some food. And, and since then we've been together now for 10 years, married for eight, we didn't have a son, but while we were married, we did the same thing. We made a bucket list before we had children asking what's everything we want to do as an engaged couple before we get married. What's everything we want to do as a married couple before we have children. Now that we have one, what's everything we want to do as a, as a small family of three prior to making the family bigger? And that's something we focused on is squeezing the juice out of every stage. Coming all the way back to your question, the key is at that moment when I was able to check off my boxes, life became about how do I help other people fill theirs? How do I help other people feel like they are enough, they have enough, and they're loved enough? And my thought is if I could do that for just one person every day, my gosh, once they feel full, they'll go do it for someone else the next day. And what's funny is that thought of wanting to touch or reach millions of people became, hey, can I reach the one person today who needs it most at the moment they need it with the message they need? And if I can do that, total victory. And what's amazing is at that moment, everything started to multiply way more than it ever did. Well, it's incredible, man, because I, <clears throat> I experienced it. What you're talking about, I just experienced. And, and there, I think there's a lot of times where there's methods, right? And this is a, a part that, uh, and getting a chance to be able to talk to a lot of people in this space or, um, you know, that have accomplished great things in their lives. I, I'm, I'm very curious to the, the method part of it, but because when someone's just doing a method, you can see it. And for you, you're truly living it. And I want to compliment you on this because a lot of times when you get close to people, you just see that their methods are what they lock into. But you have a way of being able to live that part of it. How have you been able to do that in your marriage too? Because a lot of times, and I've said this in the past, where my wife will find me methoding her. She'll find me techniquing her. She'll, she'll be like, don't try that stuff on me. Don't try that coaching. Don't try that whatever. Does your wife call you to the table on that stuff? And how can you keep it as real as possible? Because that's the only way we could stay in a marriage. Totally, totally. And, and so there's two pieces of this. One, I remember I wanted to interview Seth Godin a long time ago for my blog and podcast. And my team reached out to him and he wrote back, no. And I had some pretty persistent people on my team. So they decided to email him every single day until he would say yes. Um, at some point, he got frustrated that someone, I didn't know they were doing this, but they were literally asking him every day. <laughs> and he opened his own email. So every day he was saying no. And eventually he wrote back. He said, I don't mean to be rude, 
but I'm more papa bear, not baby bear, if you know what I mean. I was like, wow. Oof. And I said, I totally get that. I get that. He's a big deal. My dad's a big deal. Like, I get it. I'm not going to be frustrated about that. I agree. He's a big deal. Seth is. And long story short, fast forward. I was speaking at a conference in Toronto. I got, I arrived at my friend's conference. She was like, ooh, 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 you got to meet Seth. He's here. I was like, I'm willing to, but I don't know if he'll be excited to see me <laughs> considering how my team treated him. <laughs> um, and so we went to the locker, we went to the dressing room. She went in, she goes, I'll go get him. She ran inside, told him. He comes to the door almost reluctantly and he's like, hi, nice to meet you in person. It's like, great to meet you too. Don't want to take any of your time. Just want to say hello. And if you ever want to do a, a podcast, I'd love to. He goes, thanks. We shook hands. He went back in the room. We left. Um, but then something interesting happened. Fast forward. Uh, I, I listened to it. I went and sat in the audience. I listened to his speech. It was wonderful. My favorite phrase is people like us do things like this. The contrasting identity statement in marketing, meaning how do you make sure that the identity of your customers connects with what it is you're wanting them to do? And I was like, oh, so powerful. At the end, he took questions. I immediately threw my hand in the air because I had a question. Um, I did research and I found out one of his children, his son, works in the mailroom at his company. And I went, that's interesting for Mr. Standout, be different, purple cow, find your unique identity. And his son works in the company. I was like, that's interesting. Well, I wonder what advice he would have for his son, because that's a father-son relationship. It's dynamic, usually has tension and pressure and all kinds of goodness in it as well. So I raised my hand and I asked him, I said, what would you say to your son on how to use the purple cow method to stand out, be different and find his own voice and and method in the world. And he thought about it and he said, I don't think that question has anything to do with me or my son. I think this has to do with you and your dad. And I was like, it didn't genuinely, I wanted to know what he would say to his son. Cause I just, I felt like there was something there. Um, and he said, I've researched you. I know who you are. I've researched you. I've looked up your stuff. He said, if you're trying to figure out what makes you different, I'll tell you in your industry, what makes you different is that you actually care. That's it. And I went, huh, he nailed it. I also went home that night and went, how in the hell do I make that a slogan on a website? <laughs> I'm like, I like it. I just don't know how to say it. Like if I went to a website and it said, what makes me different is I care. I'd be like, bullshit. That's the fakest thing I've ever seen. If someone has to say it, I don't believe it. <laughs> I was like, man, that was the most helpful, unhelpful marketing advice from Seth I've ever received. And, and what you said, though, is the alignment piece. I genuinely do care. I like humans for some reason. I think they're fascinating. I went to school for psychology. I like studying humans. I like watching them and understanding why they choose what they choose to do and how to help them be better and more, you know, live a more fulfilled life and abundant life. And so I'm genuinely curious and interested in all humans. Um, I believe that we can learn from everyone around us. Everyone. The homeless guy that used to sleep outside of my house in San Diego, his name was Mike. He was a construction worker up in Oregon. He lost his job, moved down to San Diego, broke up with his girlfriend, landed up living with a group of guys. The guys were in the drugs and bad shit. 
he decided it was safer and more intelligent and less risky to live under a cardboard box in Mission Beach than it was to stay at the house with guys who were getting into trouble. Him and I used to have lunch once a week. And my thought is, I can learn from this guy. I can either learn from him insights and things that he mastered on what to do in life, and I can pick up lessons on things of what not to do in life. And I used to have this kind of harsh judgmental belief, which is everyone is either a warning or an example. And it was really judgmental. And eventually when I met enough people and, and asked enough questions, I realized everyone is a, a warning and an example. If you hang out with any human being long enough, you will realize so more in their life, they are a huge warning of what not to do. And if you hang out with them long enough, you'll realize so more in their life, they're a beautiful example of what to do. Where did you learn to ask such great questions? Because this was the thing that, and for those of you listening too, I want you, here's the backstory with Jarek. My friend Tristan told me you need to meet Jarek. I said, cool, I'd like to meet Jarek. He hit us on a text. Jarek responded immediately. And then he went, we went off of the group text and you went directly to me. I said, Jarek, it's great to meet you. Congratulations on all the things that you're doing. I would love to have you on the podcast. It wasn't five minutes that it took for you to respond and be like, I would love to. And then after an I love to, this is the progress of life, guys, I want you to realize. After you said, I would love to, you actually did it. And here's the one of the top performance coaches in the world, one of the best speakers in the world, uh, best-selling author, and the president of Success Enterprises. And I reach out, and you respond immediately. So I, I just want to help with the backstory part of it, but where did you learn that questions were going to be so important? Because I think that a lot of times when you get around people, um, they don't realize that the power is in the question, not in the answer. Totally. And, and, totally. and, and Jarek, I found this, I asked a couple of questions in a couple of groups that I had, and it was amazing because I asked, what questions do you have or, or how can you help? And people responded with like almost beating their chest, their slogan of their company, all this stuff. And I was like, no, no, no. What do you need? How can you, you ask, but no one would, because I think yeah. a lot of times we, we don't have the permission who gave you permission to ask these amazing questions. So I'll tie this back into, does my wife call me out trying to use tools? <laughs> um, I remember, so her and I studied relationships. Well, I studied relationships for five years before I met her. Okay. And I have this crazy concept called getting a personal PhD. Okay. Which means if you wanted to get a PhD in a subject, you generally spend four years in undergraduate, two to three years as your master's, and then another few years for your PhD, which is total 10 to 12 years of deeply focused and studying that topic. And so I do the same thing. I wanted to figure out why my relationships were never lasting more than three months. And so for five years, I studied as if I was going to school for a degree in relationships. I studied relationships, courses, books, programs, mentors, teachers, coaches, like I immersed myself in the concept of wanting to master this topic. After five years of studying it, I met my wife and I was prepared to share with her, not get from her, to support her, to care for her, to be present, like all these things I learned. And there were tools, there were skill sets that had been learned and practiced. 
I remember since then, so for the last 10 years, together, we have passionately studied, learned, and practiced all these tools and all the new stuff we could learn. What's interesting, I'll give you a specific example where we learned something called Imago therapy. And there's a way that you express yourself and then there's a way that you receive it, like pitching and catching. If we were flying a plane as pilots, there's a way that I pass the control to you so that you know you're flying the plane. It's you're in control, you say, I'm in control, and then I say, you're in control, I take my hands off, you put your hands on, you are now flying the plane, I will not touch the steering devices. And so in a relationship, there's ways to communicate that are scientifically proven to make it effective. Um, give an example, there's a group we studied with for years, I'm level one certified, working on my level two, it's Gottman.com, Gottman University. John and Julie Gottman studied relationships for over 35 or 40 years now, they studied 3,000 couples, race, religion, background, pairing type, age, gender, all that stuff. 3,000 couples, and they found there's seven things that when they did consistently, the relationship worked. And if they violated any of the seven things, it fell apart. And I went, we have to master those seven things. Like that's a tool, that's a skill. One of the things in their communication of working through conflict, they call it a soft startup. And a soft startup has three parts. I feel and the specific emotion, when and the specific trigger, and what I need is and the specific way that it could be healed or remedied. I remember my wife and I were having a conflict, which happens, part of life. And I remember I stopped and I went, wait, Let's use our tools. I feel, and I said the emotion, when, and I gave the exact piece, and I said, what I really need is this. And she goes, I can't do that. You sound like a robot. Like you literally sound like a robot. She's like, I, I just can't. Like, just just talk to me. Why are, why are, I know, I know it works. I know it's scientifically proven over 35 years and 3,000 doubles. This is exactly what works and make a relationship healthy and last, but I just can't do the robot stuff. And I looked at her and I said, the only reason it sounds like a robot is because I suck at it. Because I haven't done it enough that is part of my DNA. And I said, if you allow me to, I'll make you this promise. I will suck at this so horrible as long as it takes until I master it so I can be there for you when you need me. Man, man, hold on. We need to stop recording because men out there, don't let the don't let your wife listen to uh, Jarek because your wives are going to see what's possible in a man, and then we're going to be held to that standard, Jarek. I'm joking with you. I mean, Jarek, this is it's mind blowing. I mean, what you just said. If you if every man would say that to their wife, then then divorces wouldn't be present in America. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like the the I. Yeah. The mat, what what helped you to learn that? Because while you were talking about it, 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 it made me think of Taekwondo. And this is the reason why. When, when I was a kid, I took Taekwondo. And they would show you the 27 movements, the block, and the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But that never happened. That never worked in a street fight. In a street <laughs> fight, if you went out there trying to do some Taekwondo, you would get whooped. You would get whooped. <laughs> yeah. But 
you took the techniques and you said, I want to own them. Like, where did, where'd you get that desire? Like, where do you, like, how does a person tap into that part? Because it's not the methods. The methods are out there. You read the books, you do, but I mean, this is like that, Jarek is, that's the magic. You know what I'm saying? Like, how can we the tap into that is, magic? The magic is staying committed to success. And what that really means is I'm willing to be horrible at something long enough until I figure out how to practice it enough until I'm great at it. And that's a commitment to success. I am committed to being successful, period. I will not stop. I'm okay with being horrible in the beginning. I'm okay with being okay as I go. I'm okay with being pretty good eventually. And eventually I will not stop until I completely master this. That level of dedication, consistency, um, a friend of mine who helped build the tribe around Burning Man, helped build the tribe around Habitas, some of these amazing epic communities around the world. He says, rituals are what brings community together. Got it. And with the right rituals, it gives someone the ability to count on specific things happening in specific places at specific times that locks a place in their brain, in their emotions, in their body that says, I can count on that happening. Whether I go or not doesn't matter. I can count on it. I have faith. I believe I have certainty that will happen. And so I look at that and I always ask people, what are the rituals you need so that your community can count on you? Because if you're a business owner and your community can't count on you, why are they going to do business with you? And so this concept of what are the rituals you need to bake into your business or your life so that your community can count on you? If you happen to own a business, what are the rituals you need to bake in so that your team can count on you? That when they really need you, you'll be there. Third, what are the rituals you need to bake into your life that your family can count on you? You're the person they can count on when it really comes down to it. And finally, what are the rituals you need to bake into your life so that you can count on you? People talk about building self-confidence. Self-confidence is the ability to look yourself in the mirror and say, that person right there, I can count on them to do what needs to be done when it's time. And if you can't count on yourself, there is no self-confidence. You don't believe in yourself. You don't think you'll show up when time really comes to the test. And so I look at it, and if you reverse engineer that and start with yourself, how do you or what do you have to start doing each day that would cause you to become someone that you can count on? How do you ripple that up a layer into becoming the person your family can count on, ripple it up a layer into becoming the person your team can count on, ripple it up one more layer, the person that your community can count on? If you build the right rituals in your life and you're committed to success at every stage of that journey and you will commit to doing it until you master it and you become the type of person you can count on, your family can count on, your community can count on, your team can count on, everything else will handle itself. Powerful questions like those, those are powerful questions. If you just wrote those down, you could spend a whole two days journaling on that and come up with an entire master plan for your 2023 life goals. <laughs> like those are powerful questions. Where I got those, um, getting trained in coaching skills. Uh, Harvard Business Review, Stanford, Google, all these companies are starting to do research and showing coaching is more effective than managing period in business and so coaching skills is a certain set of tools 
that allow you to help someone flourish as a human being, period. Meaning if you've ever played sports or you've ever had a personal coach or a business coach or health coach, the way that they speak to you, and it's not the motivational speech, the way that when they ask you the right question, when they get you to see the right angle, when they help you become courageous enough to take off the mask and share what's really going on, when they help you stand in that place of courage and they can point out the blind spots and you're willing to hear them and work through them, not just defend and pretend like it's not there. When you find that right coach, oof, it's a game changer. And the way I describe that is if you think about hiking Mount Everest, what is the number one most important investment you make for the entire trip? What would you say? I would think Sherpa yeah. would, I think with Sherpa would be right up there. It, but, but I talked through this where, is it the oxygen tank in case you yeah. run out of air and the yeah. air gets too thin? Is it the ability to have a hella lift, like a, a rescue chopper ready in case something goes wrong so you don't freeze to death? Is it the right tent, the right boots, the right clothes, uh, the plane flight, the, the, the pass to get on the mountain? Like what, what's the most important thing you invest in? And you're spot on. It's the right Sherpa. Imagine going to a Sherpa and, and you saying, hey, have you successfully helped anyone navigate this mountain? And they shrug and go, some make it, some don't. My job is just to help get them as far as I can. I'd be like, not going with that person. No, thank <laughs> you. I want the one who has successfully got them up. Now, imagine the next one says, everyone who goes with me makes it to the top. That sounds better. But my next question would be, do they make it back? It's great if you get them there, but can you successfully help them get back alive or do they die and freeze at the top? Like if you're the dude that has 50 people frozen at the top, I'm sure shit ain't hiking with you. You'll leave me when it really matters versus someone who says, no, no, no. All my people make it, enjoy it and get back safely. I'd be like, who here's my person. This is my person I'm hiking with. And why is that person so useful? Number one, they're going to observe how I'm doing it. They're going to watch me as I'm trying to do the journey. And they're going to tell me, if you don't stand up straighter by day three, your back is going to hurt so bad that you will not be able to function. I'm like, okay, I'm standing up. They're going to watch me. Hey, you're not drinking enough water. You need more water and stay hydrated because we're so high and the air is so thin and you're working so hard. If you don't hydrate, you're not going to make it. Like they're observing my performance and they're giving me little adjustments based on patterns they see because they've helped a lot of people through the process. And so I look at that. I look back at my life. Um, luckily, when I was 18, my family's in this industry. They put me through 250 hours of coach training before they allowed me to start coaching for their organization when I was 18. And so that gave me an incredible foundation. My godfather co-created NLP which is a, a cool set of tools of understanding human beings even better. Nowadays in the technical field, they call it cognitive behavioral therapy, how the mind and behaviors affect the emotion and performance of the human. Um, and then I went and studied psychology, why people do what they do. What are the different stages of development? What's important to them? What do they need to learn? How do they need to develop and grow at each moment of life? And so putting all that together really laid the foundation for me to understand, wow, if I can help people navigate these journeys, 
My job is to help them scale their mountain of success. And the more people I get to that peak of the mountain and back safely, the more times I get to venture up the mountain as well. So, Jerry, Jerry, talk, talk to me too about we were we were talking earlier, and we don't. I mean, some of the things that we got a chance to talk about. I mean, later on when they actually come to fruition, you all of you that are listening or watching, your minds are going to be blown. We're not going to talk about the specifics of it, but I want a, a thirty thousand foot view of this, where you talked about a concept of if you truly wanted for people to experience something, you needed to help them to be successful enough to be able to fund the experience. And this was a concept, it was just, it blew my mind because most of the time in marketing, a person's like, I got the widget, let's call it the widget. I got the widget, you need the widget. The widget costs X amount. Don't matter where you get it, don't matter if you rob your mama for it, you need to buy my widget because then I can live the life that I want. But you said, I've got this widget. This widget will help you. But I'm going to show you how to be able to make enough money to be able to buy the widget so this widget will help you. Can, can, can you help? Because this is, a, again, a mind-blowing kind of concept. Why is that so important to you? Totally. Um, I grew up in sales. My grandma taught me how to sell when I was five or six years old. She had me in a suit. Um, she raised five children went and worked as a secretary for the Chamber of Commerce in Los Angeles. That's what women did at that stage of history. Then she says, you know what? I'm going to do something more fun. So she got into sales. And for the last probably 45 years, she's been the number one salesperson in, in any business she's ever worked in. And I tease people. She's 83 this year. And as of last year, she used to cold call three days a week. And so I teach people, I say, if you're not cold calling at least three days a week, my grandma is royally kicking your ass. <laughs> um, but I, I learned a lot of stuff from her along the way. And looking at those pieces, if you want to influence people, there's certain skills you learn, there's certain tools, there's techniques and all this stuff. But more important than that, it's learning how to really, really care for people. And what I've noticed along the way is she would work so hard. And she would make good money, but the people who made the real money were the people who owned the company. And then I started observing in other places and I saw friends working for companies and they would do okay. But then I saw friends who own companies and, and they would all flourish. And I went, hmm, the paradigm of business has been if you own a business, you know, the whole job, or what is it, employee, self-employed, owner, investor, like that was the paradigm so many people used. And I looked at that and I said, why is this system not set up so that someone can flourish in all four of the boxes? Why is the system only set up so that people can flourish in two of the boxes? That doesn't make any sense. And I said, could we rebuild a system that someone could flourish in all four of the boxes? How could we, and it's the right, like you said, the right question. How could we build a system that people can flourish in all four of the boxes? It's a paradigm shift. I mean, Netflix figured out a paradigm shift from DVDs to streaming. Everyone thought it was crazy until now. Everyone thinks it's the new norm. I said the same thing. Could we shift a paradigm that everyone who participates is able to benefit in the process of building it? And the hashtag became we all rise together. 
Can we create an environment? Can we create a community that everyone gets healthier mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually? Everyone gets healthier being involved in their own way. Everyone has more fulfilling relationships. We all do the work. We all hold each other accountable. We all nudge each other forward so that all of us have better relationships in the process. Could we do it so that anyone who participates in building the business, it's not a multi-level, like just anyone who participates can earn significant amounts of income in the process of participating and helping build the community, helping build the business itself. And then can we set up the right advisors? Can we set up the right opportunities so that as people are building and growing, you know, money, that then we can produce wealth, which is investing it and protecting it so that it works for us and continues to earn long-term substantial wealth. And I said, if we can figure that out, I feel like we're cracking into something that hasn't really been done yet. And not only hasn't been done, but people have tried, it just hasn't worked yet. And I said, what if we can crack the code though? And so I started using the hashtag and researching the hashtag, we all rise together. And I started saying, how can we create things that allow people who participate in the process of being part of the community. So committed to saying, I am healthy. I'm doing the work. And I, I let me grab my journal. I wrote it down. I'll read you some of the kind of tenets of the community because I think these are important. Um, if someone were to join the community, they're saying, hey, I am striving to be my best self. Happy, healthy, strong, and fulfilled as a person. I'm striving for those things. Number two, I'm, I'm, I am cultivating deep and meaningful relationships, loving, kind, caring, and courageous. I am building a booming business, focused, willing, dedicated, and successful. I am creating wealth for the people and projects that matter in the world, abundant, consistent, reliable, and wealthy. And I said, if, if we do that, that's special. And I said, you know, that's the individual what happens when people like that come together and, and, and how would it represent the community? What would it mean if 10 of us got together, a hundred of us got together, a thousand of us got together and it said, well, we are a global community of business builders focused on adding value and creating wealth for ourselves and others. We are dedicated to consistently learning from each other and with each other. We believe that we can learn from everyone we cross paths with and strive to do so. We live it. We apply all that we learn and create real, real world results for ourselves and our communities. And we are generous with what we know and consistently pay it forward. We believe in a hand up, not a handout. So we welcome all those willing to do the work a seat at the table. But help, help, me, with, help me with this, Jarek, though. There's, we call them the old guard, right? The way that we used to. We do it because that's the way we used to. How do you deal with the old guard resistance? Because what you just said is, is honestly, it's, it's groundbreaking. Um, the old guard would be like, yo, you're about to take some of my pie. You're about to take some of what I was getting. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I'm not saying that I feel that way. I'm just saying from an old guard's perspective, it generally was like everybody served the owner, right? And then the owner all got fat. And then everybody else that was doing the work, they did okay, like you talked about. How do we deal with that opposition? Like, uh, you know, Bob Iger dealt with that opposition to Disney Plus. And in sure. his in his book, um, he was talking about it, and it, he he talked about Disney Plus and that Disney was going all in on Disney Plus, and they were like, they almost fired him because of that. 
And then the pandemic hit, and then Disney Plus went nuts, and they were like, yeah, that's our guy. I mean, so how do you deal with that early on? Because we know that once that happens, I mean, obviously, if you don't think that Jarek's your guy, you you, you need to change your mind, because Jarek, you're, you're our guy. Yeah. Um, the neat part is some of this has already been proven. So success was purchased by EXPI. And, and Glenn, who's the founder of EXP Realty and EXPI, him and I worked together on models. And some of these epiphanies came through him and I's discussions where, you know, this guy built a business that did $185 billion in realty sales last year, $4 billion in revenue as a company. They have 86,000 agents and they're growing like a rocket ship, meaning tons of people are joining every single day from around the world. And I sat with him and he helped me see different business models. When I first joined, I was setting up a department for them and I put together an old business model, the old guard, what I know to be true, what I know that works. And it was built on, hey, this is a thick, highly profitable business model. And, they, and we loved it. We we're like, great, we're about to be rich. We'll make a bunch of money off of this. And he came in. And he said, how much could we give away and still be intelligent and make profit? I was like, why would we give it away? And so I'm not saying this was my genius. I'm saying spending a year with a guy who built a company that did $185 billion and his focus is how much can we give to all the people who help us build? And I went, you know what? That's where I started. I started in the nonprofit world. I started in the how do I help people world. And I went, wait a minute. This was the first time that I saw both of the circles starting to overlap. Now, my friend Adam Braun taught me this. He started Pencils of Promise. He worked for Bain and Company. He was a consultant. Then eventually with 25 bucks, he started Pencils of Promise, which is now built over 600 schools all around the world and educates thousands of children every month in all these different places. And he said, there's two parts to make something really work. Number one is the brain of Wall Street, super smart, tactical, you know, strategy driven. How do you optimize your profitability? And then number two is the heart of a nonprofit. How do you invest in people and projects that really matter in the world and make the world a better place and fill the needs that are, that are there? And then he said, if you take the two circles and you overlap them, when we're both overlap in the middle, he drew a line and said, this is called a for purpose enterprise. It's a company that makes an insane amount of profit and then reinvests in the people and projects that matter to make a purpose, purposeful difference in the world. So I looked at that and then I looked at what Glenn said and I went, well, wait a minute, we can make the money and then we can throw it to wherever we believe matters or we can make money and we can help everyone also who helps build it make a ton of money as well. And they can invest into the things that really matter, the people and projects that matter to them in the world. We can choose ours, they can choose theirs, and then we can all choose to rise together. And it clicked and I went, ah, there it is. There it is. And I said, because in the nonprofit world, the biggest frustration was we had to walk around with our hand out all the time asking people for donations. What I loved, what Adam shared with me, he's like, stop begging, build a business, optimize it, create your own wealth that reinvests so you can give it away as much and as often as you want without ever having to think about it. And you built an engine that will forever fund 
the projects you're doing. I'll give you an example. My dad committed to delivering a, a billion meals through Feed America over the last 10 years. He's already donated, I think, 980 million meals over the last like nine years. He's ahead of schedule. But something clicked in his head where he's like, it's great that I did it over, you know, a billion meals over 10 years. How could I do a hundred million meals every single year for infinity, like every year, forever? How can I set something up that would feed a hundred million people every single year forever? And he looked at the number and he went, shoot, you know, that's even bigger than my bank account. So he was doing a speech in Abu Dhabi. He met with one of the, the royal family members there. And he said, would you partner with me on this? And they did. And they made a partnership where they're going to put enough money in the right place where it will forever provide 100 million meals a year moving forward. I was like, damn, I like that. They built an engine that'll produce the necessary resources to fund the people and projects they believe in and support the ones who need it throughout forever. Now, huh, same piece, for-purpose enterprise. Can we build wealth? Can we help everyone participating to build wealth? And can all of us start to invest in the people and projects that matter in the world? And I said, if we get this right, we now have a movement, not just a company. Jarek, you've tapped into something today and yeah, you hadn't said it, but you know, so many people talk about mindset, right? And I, I think of mindset as, as, as methods, right? But most don't come with the heart set because the skill set will come from your mindset. But most people don't realize that your, your, your mindset, um, doesn't really gain the magic until the heart set is there. Right. So how can a person like, how can a person out there that's listening and if, you know, if, if you have, if you weren't taking notes, go back and listen to this and take notes. Because one of the main things that, that I've heard from you is that when you wanted to go towards something, you gave yourself the permission to try, permission to suck, and you gave yourself the permission to have enough time in that thing that you didn't think that it was going to be overnight that you studied it. So how can a person listening that maybe didn't, hasn't spent the five years on the relationship, hasn't spent the, you know, 10 years inside the relationship, working on the relationship, hasn't spent the, the amount of time studying people or when you were four years old learning sales, you know, putting you in a suit or five years old in a suit. Where can a person start right now to start getting their heart set in line so their mindset will, can follow and their skill set can ultimately be built? Yeah, you got to get in the dojo. You got to get on the mat. You got to practice. And I think the best place to practice right now is a community we're building. You can go to success.com forward slash community. It's free. Uh, but get in a place that everyone is practicing how to be healthier. Everyone is practicing how to be happier. Everyone is practicing how to have more fulfilling relationships. If you start to surround yourself with the right community of people all striving for success, you're more likely to show up. You're more likely to do the work. You're more likely to put in one more rep. You're more likely to try a little harder. All the research shows if you sign up for a gym membership by yourself versus if you sign up for a gym membership with a buddy, with a buddy, I think you are 79% more likely to actually follow through. You're like, that's crazy, just by bringing a friend. And so that's the piece is I say, one, come to the community but if you come to the community alone, 
there's a chance you're going to fall out because you don't immediately find the pod. You don't feel connected. You don't, you don't know anybody. So my thought is invite people to come with you on your journey to success. Find your four or five friends who want to be healthier, who want to be happier, who want to be more fulfilled, who want to build wealth, who want to have a great relationship, who want to do all the big things in life. Invite them with you on your journey to success. And all of a sudden, your odds of success go up because you're surrounding yourself with other people who are all committed to success. And what we're trying to do is set up a system that when you invite your friends to join you, you'd actually be compensated for doing so if they end up buying anything in the community. And so the community itself is free. There's other options. If they want to deepen their learning, we're going to have courses on relationships, on wealth building, on business building, on your health, on your mindset, all these things. We're building a library. We're calling it a marketplace. You can dive in and learn whatever you want. There's always free versions you can use to get the momentum building. Once you have enough momentum, you can invest at whatever level you want and keep going. But Every time you invite someone to come with you on your journey to success, we're going to make sure you're compensated for it. Derek, how is it with your, say like with your wife, um, you know, I want to go back to that. I want to ask you too, is what was the, what was your wife's response when you guys got into the argument? I call them a fast, loud discussion in my home. Um, <laughs> we're not arguing. We're talking fast and loud. Of course. We're, we're discussing, we're communicating at a high level is what it is. Um, when you said that to her and you said, you know, I'm the reason why I suck is because I just started at it and I'm going to stay committed. What was her immediate response? Was it like, oh, wow, I'm just in good hands and we can move out of this argument? Or did she say like, I mean, what was the response? No, she just gave me a hug. She gave me a hug. Those words were nothing more than re me reaffirming, I'm committed to you. Mm. I'm not going anywhere, and I'm going to keep trying until I figure it out. That's what those words meant. And that's what she wanted to know. Hey, we don't align on this. We don't agree right now. We're going to need to do a little bit of repairing in our relationship over this. But are you committed? Are you still here? Are you going to choose to run and hide? Are you going to... Are you going to try to escape or are you going to just block me out and stonewall me? Are you going to do the four horsemen that kill relationship? Like, what are you going to do? And I was like, nope, not going anywhere right here. I'm committed, dedicated, willing to do what it takes. Let's do this. And I have a rule. If my wife needs me, there's a, there's one of those seven things called turning towards meaning when your partner makes a bid for your attention, Hey, Look at this. Whoa, what's that? Anything, just a little bid. They're like, hey, it's me. That, the, the key is you practice turning towards, which means you stop anything you're doing and you turn towards them and then engage. That's it. Now that violates every time management book that's ever been written. Put the sign on the door, block it out, power hour, no distractions, you know, all this stuff. And I was like, that will murder a relationship. Murder, it'll kill it. And I have a rule, if my wife came in here and said, hey, I need you, I would stop what I'm doing, regardless of what I'm doing, and I would stop and immediately go to her. 
period. She comes first. And she knows that. And what's interesting, the more I show that to her, the less she tests it. The more she champions me to go do what needs to be done. And vice versa, the more she shows that to me, the less I test it in her and the more I champion her and support her to go get what she needs to be done done. It goes both ways. And so it's a process where when you learn the right pieces or seven pieces from Gottman and there's others from other people, um, when you learn the tools, are you willing to practice tools enough until you master the tools? Are you, are you committing to success in the process? Are you saying, you know what? I am absolutely committed to being successful at this no matter what. I will not stop until I am successful. Jerk, what do you wish that more people knew about success? I'm not talking about the company, but I'm talking about the word success because, you know, you were you you hit it early on. You said that, you know, it's a mountaintop with the with very thin air. <laughs> you know, but what do you wish that people would have known because in that first mountain that you climb, I mean, I, I could tell you this, growing up in Longpool, California, um, I used to be like, you know, I used to hear people like money won't make you happy. I was like, I'm going to try. Like, I'm going to try. You know, find I mean? out and I report was, back, okay? That's what I'm saying. They were like, if you if you just go after stuff and things, I was like, I'll be the first. Let me be the first to keep a full heart and have all the stuff too. And what, what I realized is later on, after building companies and, and doing this stuff, I was like, man, I'll take a bike, like a bicycle, ride the bicycle to the beach and write in my journal. I'll take that over anything else. But before, if you would have told that Lompoc kid that, I would have been like, man, you're, you're full of it. What, what, what do you wish that people knew about that word? So the key, when I got back from Africa, I gave away all my stuff. I used to like stuff. So I'll, I'll piece together a story real quick. When I grew up, I was growing up at the time in high school when MTV music videos were the coolest thing in the world. I would throw on my favorite music video that I actually recorded onto a VHS uh, player. Like I recorded it onto a, a, a tape so I could play it every morning when I got ready because I, it just made me feel great. And the song I'd replay was Hypnotized by Biggie Smalls and Puff Daddy. It was the greatest video of all time. Hel there you go. Helicopters, um, a Hummer, Mercedes going backwards, rocket bikes, like girls, boats, yachts, money, parties. Like it was everything. And I was like, man, if I could live like them, then I really know I did something big in life. That, that was me at 14, 15. After moving to Africa, and living in a village with no running water, no electricity, no toilets, seeing these people be happy and fulfilled and joyful without any stuff, no things. It was just them. Like one of the joyous guys I met was a little dude who slept in a, in a clinic's broom closet. And his most pride possessions were like three hats that he owned. It was his hat collection. He had three. Um, and every morning he'd sweep the leaves. And I remember I, I went and interviewed him one time and he told me, I said, you know, why do you do what you do? You seem to be so happy. My friends translated and, and he said, the reason I sweep the leaves is because I believe every human being, whether a small baby about to enter this world or a sick or elderly person about to leave this world, I believe they deserve a clear path to do so. I was like, damn, bro. 
I've met people who have mega fortunes and all this stuff and all these things who hate their life. I've met some that like their life too, but, I, but, but so many of them are struggling with finding this thing called purpose. And then I met this guy who's sweeping leaves in a village in Uganda and lives in a broom closet who had more purpose than most people I've met in my entire lifetime. And I said, how did he do that? How did he find so much purpose in the process of sweeping leaves every day? Because it wasn't sweeping leaves. In his mind, it was clearing a path for people to enter and exit the world through with dignity. Now, when that is powerful and all of a sudden something clicked, I came back from Africa. I gave away all my stuff. I'm like, I don't need all these shoes. I don't need all these clothes. I don't need all this stuff. Like I need one pair of shoes. I need maybe my, my, my rainbow sandal, sandals, a couple shirts, a couple shorts. That's all I need. I don't need anything else. And I gave it away. And I felt whole. I felt full. I felt alive. Truthfully, when I got back, I thought a toilet you could sit on was the coolest thing in the world. And lights? My mom was worried about me because I spent like an hour in the hallway just turning lights on and off. I'm like, this is incredible. <laughs> um, but it, it was a reconnecting with what was actually most important. I was told I had six days left to live. I had malaria when I was there. I refused to take the medicine because I grew up in California. and We believe green drink and meditation heals everything. Um, so I, I refused to take the medication because I was going to meditate myself back to health, which the doctor there told me was the stupidest thing he's ever heard in his entire career. Uh, but I vouched that I would survive through meditation and vegetable juice. I did take the medication. It did save my life. That was my, my stubbornness as a, as a young guy there. Um, but in the process of getting knocked off my first mountain, like some people reach it and then move on. Some people are kicked off their first mountain. That was a moment that kind of kicked me off my first mountain. And I came home and I was like, the purpose of living is giving. The purpose of life is helping others. The purpose of life is helping people, especially people who need it most. And I went back to a, pub, a private university in San Diego that I was going to, where girls are wearing Ugg boots and talking about Starbucks and TV shows. And I just shook my head at people. And I was so judgmental. I was so just frustrated with people wasting so much. I was pissed off at homeless people in the United States. Like I'd pull up and see someone asking for money and be like, you have it so good here. And, I, and eventually it clicked in my mind. I was like, you know what? That's not going to help anybody. Like my judgmentalness, my, my being frustrated with people, that's not going to help. And me trying to convince them, that stuff doesn't matter. Focus on service, focus on helping, focus on giving. That's not going to change their mind. So eventually I sat down and I said, you know what? Instead of trying to convince people to hike a different mountain, what if I just helped them get to the top of the mountain faster and then let them decide if it's everything they dreamed of or if they want to go check out that second mountain? And then I started building a business around how do I accelerate someone's journey up their first mountain? How do I help them achieve everything they've ever dreamed of? as quickly as humanly possible? Can I find the shortcuts? Can I find the strategies? Can I find tools that work? Can I find formulas from people who've done it over and over again? Can I tell them, if you wanna build this kind of business, it takes between five to seven years. It's not an overnight thing, but as long as we follow the right patterns in five years, you'll be here and seven years, you'll be here, bingo. Like, can I give them true paths 
to navigate the journey, maps, let's say, on how to navigate that first mountain. And that's where I built the last 15 years of my life is helping people accelerate their journey up that first mountain. And what's fun is when I get them to the peak, almost all of them get hungry for that second mountain. And what's fun is all the work we did to get to the first, when they finally get to their second, they always look at me and they're like, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me the second mountain was this amazing? Like, this is where the real joy is. This is what life is all about, man. This is what I was made for. Like, I did. You weren't ready for it. You weren't ready for it. So instead of fighting you or dragging you like a stubborn donkey to the second mountain, I just help you get up that first one much faster. And I found when you do that, people are, when you help someone get everything they ever wanted and they can check and say, I am enough, I have enough, I'm loved enough, I'm good. They forget about themselves and life becomes about how do I help other people, which is the second mountain. Man, I feel like I'm in a like an alternate universe. The reason why is because you did that for me in the first 15 minutes before we started recording and I didn't know it was happening. Like the way that you, and, and for those of you watching or listening, or if you've just tuned in or I, I wish I like, honestly, Jerick, I wish I would have just recorded it just for you and me, because like what you just explained, you did and you did it not in a, I mean, you, you did it from your heart, man. And, and I watch, like I studied, I've studied people for my whole entire life. And it's, it's amazing. Another thing that you talked about and that you did and that you shared, you didn't talk much about it. But can you talk about the correlation or the connection point between journaling and people who accomplish high levels of whatever it is that they're going after, whether that's success or whether that's, you know, uh, purpose or, uh, you know, significance? Because I noticed, like, my, my pop had us, my, me and my brother, we hated it. But my pop, you would have loved him. He passed away last year. Actually, um, yesterday was his year anniversary. Oh. And... Uh, Young dude, but he made us take 10 pages of notes from the time I was in fourth grade to the time I was in sixth grade. And he made us sleep teach, actually sleep teach on your pops of stuff. So I used to have to listen to your, uh, to your family for 10 hours in my headphones at night for two years straight. It was called sleep teaching. So Me eight, too. Eight, Me to too. Ten, yeah, eight to 10 hours a day, man. And this is, uh, you're the only I'm gonna throw this in there. My mom used to let me go to sleep to the subliminal tapes from my dad's set until she said, go clean your room. And I turned around at like four or five, six years old. And I said, I'm in charge of my life. And she goes, that's enough of that shit. Uh, <laughs> away. Well, my, my pop had me listening to, uh, in, in addition to your family, it was um, a guy named James E. Tollison. There was uh, Norma Vincent Peale and um, Ken Blanchard, um, you know, and we used to have to listen to those like and they, we, he, he got a Walkman and broke the Walkman and stuck a, a, a headphone in my pillow, a headphone in my brother's, drilled a hole through the wall, auto reverse Walkman. <laughs> and then every day after school, we used to have to take 10 pages of notes on these uh, millionaire courses before we went to uh, before we got to play. Well, I wrote really big skipped lines and wrote like f three sentences on a page. My brother was very good with his penmanship. But the reason why I say it is because I've been a like I've been a, a crazy journaler my whole entire life. I noticed you pick one up and you read, and when you read, reading your own writing is sometimes a little weird for us, right? You know, 
And but when you read it, like, can you talk to the connection point of why in journaling is so important? And, you know, because some people say, I just don't have time for it. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, so I journal every day. And, and I don't know if you could see it. I was going to ask if you would show. Yeah. So I journal every day and there's certain key parts of the journal. Hence where the little thingy is. Okay. If I flip this back, this is my 10 year vision statement for all the major categories of my life. This one is the three year targets of where I'm headed in all the categories. This one are the, or that's three years. This one is the one year targets. And then if you flip to the front, this is what's, what we're focused on this week in all the major categories. And so to me, if you ask my wife for the last, golly, 14, last 24 years of my life, I've read, written, and, and embodied the vision of who I am and where I'm going every single day. And so once a week, I will write out the entire plan again. And my wife, when we first got together, she's like, why do you write the same thing every week? And I said, because I need to write it, read it, hear it, feel it, see it, be it. Like it needs to exist in every pathway of my nervous system. And what we've learned is when someone does something for the first time, if you watch their brain waves, there's a huge spike. And it's the first time the spikes keep really high on the, on the brain scan and then it falls. After someone does something for the fifth, 10th, 12th, you know, 20th time, the brain waves spike and then their body drops, their brain waves drop down into a gentle hum on the bottom of the screen until they switch activities and then there's a spike. And when you watch that really closely, what that represents, Yale University found out 40 to 60% of what we do every day is nothing more than an unconscious habit. It's unconscious, not conscious. We're not aware of what we're doing. We're going on autopilot. And so I look at that process as how I program the autopilot. Because if 40 to 60% of what I'm going to do throughout the day is autopilot, I need to make sure that I program the autopilot to build the life of my dreams, to build the relationship I want, to build the health I, I'm compelled to make happen. Because willpower is not enough. That's been proven over and over and over again. It's, I mean, people say grind and focus and hustle. You can do that for so long and then it burns out. And if you get the internal operating system completely locked on and every day you fuel it. My godfather created NLP, which is Neuro Linguistic Programming, how you program yourself for success. My dad used to participate in that until one day a guy that he used the tools on and programmed came back and said it didn't work. And he goes, what do you mean it didn't work? And he goes, well, you did therapy on me, this programming stuff five years ago to help me quit smoking. And I didn't touch a cigarette for five years, but last week I smoked one. It didn't work. And he goes, wait a minute, you met with me for 45 minutes five years ago. 
and you never touched a cigarette for five years since then, that shit sounds like it worked. <laughs> and he started laughing, but then my dad had an epiphany. He said, ah, you can't program one time and expect it to last for life. Now that time it worked really well for five years, but it didn't stay for life. And he changed it. He said, what if we called it neuroassociative conditioning? where every day it requires someone to condition it and recondition it so that it stays for life. So I look at that process of hammering into my nervous system. In, in college, we learned this phrase, neurons that fire together, wire together. Charles Hebb. So basically, every time I read it, I'm creating a psychological groove or a neurological bundle, a bundle of neurons. And for got 24 years, every single day, I've reinforced that bundle of neurons. And what's funny, if you go back and you meet the people who I hung out with in junior high and grade school and high school, I wasn't the coolest. I wasn't the smartest. I was not the hardest working. I wasn't the most talented. I wasn't the best looking. Like, I was not clearing it in all the areas. I was doing okay. And after 24 years of reinforcing the neurological bundles, I'm still not the best looking, but a bunch of stuff have worked out really well in life. And when I look backwards on what worked out, it wasn't because I was super talented or gifted. It's not because my dad hooked me up. He said, I'll help you till you're 18. I will help you get through college, which is a huge advantage. He helped me pay for college and get me set up like that. But at 18, he said, buddy, Here's the rule. You're on your own. The answer, figure it out. This is the greatest. He said, it doesn't sound like a gift, but I promise you it'll be the best gift I can give you as a father is to let you go figure it out on your own. Hit the wall, hit the brick wall face first and go, shoot, that hurts. But figure out how to get over it, through it, around it. Figure it out. The more you train yourself, have to figure out how to do hard things, the more you're capable you'll be of taking life on. He said, my biggest fear is you don't figure it out. You become weak. I die and you live a miserable life because you can't do anything for yourself. And I went, oof, I feel that a whole lot more now that I'm a father. I'm like, shit, I want my kid to be strong, resilient, mentally capable, emotionally driven, focused. You know, I want him to be capable to live the life he wants to live, whatever that may be. And I realized, ah, that's all my dad wanted it for me. He wanted me to have whatever life it is I dreamed of and to have the skill set, the resiliency, and the tenacity to go make it real. Wow. What what has your child taught you since they were born? Oh, this dude's funny now. Uh, he wasn't funny like six months ago. He was just <laughs> him. Uh, he was cute. And he was like, oh, he's adorable. Now he's funny. Um, like he does, we put him to bed at night and he'll immediately go in his room and like pretend like he's asleep. And he's two and a half and we'll go, is Koa sleeping? And he'll go, yeah. And then she'll just like come back down. So we're like, you're not asleep, you're awake. I saw you. And he's like, no, I'm sleeping. And then goes back down. So he's funny at this stage of life. And I, I think I worked really hard. Um, my dad was working when I grew up. He was busting his face to build the empire he has nowadays. Um, but he wasn't always there. So I had a story growing up that my dad wasn't there when I grew up physically, like emotionally, spiritually, mentally, of course, he always wanted to be, but physically he, he wasn't there. If I wanted to see my dad, 
I would turn on TV and watch his infomercial um, when I really missed him. Like that's that was just my my reality. So I made a pact with myself that if I have a child, I am going to absolutely be there. I found a role model. Here's a secret to success. Find a role model. Find someone who's done it. I found Garth Brooks. I saw Garth Brooks, who was at the peak, the pinnacle of his career, selling out stadiums, hundreds of thousands of people. And his girls were old enough that they needed a full-time dad, fully present, being a dad, on dead duty. He shut down the entire tour to go focus on being a great dad. Now, I have people say, oh, it's because he's rich and famous. And I'm like, no. I know people who aren't rich and famous who dedicate themselves to being an amazing father or mother. And it's a choice. So I said, you know what? When I find out my wife's pregnant at some point, I'm going to work hard enough and diligently enough and fast enough so that I have the opportunity to wind down most of the noise in my life and be laser focused on being a great dad and being present. So I got my work down to three days a week, four hours a day, and I spent the last two and a half years being the best father and husband I could possibly be. That was my main objective every single day. Um, and, you know, what he taught me is, you know, just enjoying moments. All the magic is in the moments. It's in the moment when he first pushed his little cart down the street. It's in the moment when he took his first step. It's in the moment when we sat on the beach and my God, he was learning to crawl and he face planted in the sand and had sand in every crevice you could imagine. And we had to somehow get it out of his nose and ears and face. Um, the moments, all those moments are what make being a dad so special. Just being there for those moments. I'm really proud. I never missed a single bath time for the first year and a half of his entire life. I never missed, no matter what. I canceled meetings. I gave up speaking engagements, canceled client calls. I would not miss. And that was me working on my own stuff. That was me saying, hey, I'm going to check boxes that I didn't get that I think I wanted growing up. And who knows? Maybe he'll look back and be like, oh, my dad was always there. It was annoying. I don't know. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, that was me working on a little bit more of my own stuff that I had in my nervous system, checking those boxes and going, hey, those, those are good now. Um, I always hear child two. You're like, oh, that one will survive. So we'll find out um, if and when we're blessed to have another. We'll see how that goes. But he, he's just taught me how much magic is in all the little tiny moments of, of this two and a half year journey with him so far, which has been very, very special. Jarek, what, where, where do you fail right now um, in your marriage and your relationship? Because when a person hears you, right, and – if you're not watching this, go to YouTube and watch it because you have to see Jarek. Like you, you can see like Jarek, I, I, I've very rarely, and I've got a chance to be able to interview massive amounts of people. And in my career uh, over 30 years, um, my job essentially was interviewing people for th 30 years of my life, every 30 to 45 minutes. I mean, so massive amounts of people, but there's very few people that you, you really see their heart. Like you, you see that part of it. Um, and also to be able to hear you, I mean, it's it's mind blowing, man. I just want to. I'm going to force you to be my friend for the rest of your life. Um, I'm in. I'm in. Okay, Jarek, but and and that's that's amazing. Like I, I love you, dude. But I'm saying like, and some people are like, wow, maybe Jarek is doing everything right. But where are you failing right now in your marriage? And I'll give you an exa I'll give you an example with with me is I've been failing in my marriage in scheduling 
because mm-hmm. there's times where I schedule something and I don't communicate it well to my wife. And when I don't, at first, I want to protect myself because she'll be like, yeah, what do you have today? And I'll be like, oh, yeah, I got this interview with blah, 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 blah. And I'm so excited. And she's like, I'm, I'm going to get my nails done and you got to pick up the kids. And I'm like, but you don't understand. And she's like, did you put it in the calendar? I'm like, I did in my mind. <laughs> you know what I mean? And she's like, but it would help me if you would do it. In, and, and at first, I want to protect myself and say, like, it's not that big of a deal. You just need to understand. That's where I'm failing. And yeah. I need to get better. You know what I mean? Totally. So where, where are you failing right now? Totally. So when I, I believe in conscious choice, meaning at what point did you choose how you wanted to live your life, what you chose to believe in, what is right or wrong, what is good or bad, what's most important to you? For most of us, I saw a little quote that said, five minutes from being born, we're told what tribe we belong to, what religion to believe in, and how our life is going to be. And none of us had a conscious choice. So I always ask people, when did you consciously choose? When did you write down all the options? When did you go study all the options? After studying and researching all the options, when did you make a conscious choice? Here's the health pattern I want to live in my life. Here's the relationships I want to choose to have. Here's who I want to believe in and how I want to go about it. When did you make a conscious choice and not just living by default? And so I believe in choice so much. And one of the kind of failure points was when we had our son, I was totally focused on being a great husband and being a great dad. My wife was focused on being a great mom. We worked hard enough that we had luckily enough around us to support us in focusing so hard on that. Um, And it was a goal. We worked very hard and saved our faces off. So we had capital set aside to be able to focus on being great parents and, and great spouses with each other. It was one of our major goals we worked on in the process over those years. Um, Now, with that, though, my wife said something to me probably three weeks ago. She said, I feel like parenting is defaulted onto the mother. And it literally felt like a shockwave went through my body and it was like, I went, "Uh -uh. uh-uh, mm-mm. And I immediately said, okay, you and I need a meeting. We need to set up a meeting. We need to make sure we have someone to take care of our son. You and I need to sit down and we need to map out all the options. You want to build businesses together. You want to build your own businesses. You want to go work somewhere. What do you want? You want to travel more? What do you want? I need you to write down all the things that your heart desires and then I will find a way, no matter what it is you choose, I will rearrange our lives and we'll rearrange our lives together so that whatever you choose you want to do will be what you do. Period. I have no judgment. If you want to work, you want me to watch him, I'll watch him all day. And you you can go work or do whatever you want to do. But I want, I want nothing more than all of your dreams to come true right now. And we sat down and we wrote out building businesses, working together doing other stuff, traveling more. Like we wrote down all the options. And what was amazing is at the end of it, she goes, you know what? As exciting as all of these things are, I don't want someone else raising my son. I feel like that's the most important thing right now. I want to raise him. And I still want windows of time every day 
that I can do any of these ventures that I choose when I feel like it. And I went, there we go. As long as that's your choice, you can choose whatever you want. I'll rearrange our life to make it happen. She goes, no, I want to be with them for these hours. And I want these hours to then be available for me to do any of these other things that I want. I said, done. And what was amazing is I didn't realize for some period of time I was failing because we never actually sat down and went through that process. She was right. Some of it did default get handed to her. But as soon as we found out she felt and identified something was defaulted, we immediately made it conscious and we immediately created space to make a decision so that it was by choice of how we would move forward from that point forward. So, Jerick, my, my question to you is, I mean, all it's going to take, well, if, if you don't, if you haven't got a chance to be able to spend time with Jarek or hear him or see him, um, you probably haven't been on earth that long um, because as one of the top speakers. Hey, my mentor told me, he goes, as great as you think you are and as many people as you help, I'm going to be honest, most people don't know you exist. And I was like, thanks a lot, mentor. <laughs> but, but what I'm saying is it's just a matter of time, right? And, and, and when I say it's just a matter of time until like once someone taps you, once someone taps you, like for me, I am like, dude, I'm very seldom speechless. Everybody that listens to the podcast, everybody that knows me, very seldom in a, am I speechless. In your presence and, and speaking with you, it's not, it's, it's, I mean, it, it, it really, I keep seeing mind blowing, but it, it's incredible. And so for me, Every person that, that touches you is going, I believe, is going to feel a very similar thing, which is going to cause you to continue to rise and continue to rise. How do you stop yourself from being an idol? Because I watch this stuff happen, right? And a person has, you know, they have the greatest intentions in the entire world. They're going to help people. They're going to do this stuff. And then people start seeing them as an idol. They start to lift them up. And then the person says, oh, it kind of feels kind of good a little bit. And then it feels really good. And then they become this thing that they, you know, maybe didn't want to be. How do you stop that from, I don't, like being around you, I don't see that happening to you. But I watch people rise and I watch people ascend and a I mean, a, a very um, large amount of people you see happen to it. So how, what things are you putting in place to make sure that you don't become an idol and you, and you continue to just put the focus on the people who are accomplishing it? Yeah. Um, the reason that happens in my understanding and observation is most of them are still trying to climb their first mountain in the process of them evolving. And so it's them filling themselves up. It's them filling their own buckets. It's them trying to feel like I am enough. I have enough. I'm loved enough. And somewhere in there, it's usually the bucket with holes in it that they're most hungry to fill because it keeps emptying out no matter how much they put in it. It becomes that hungry ghost syndrome, as they call it. And that's the one that makes them start to get filled up with themselves. And the truth is that behavior is because they constantly feel depleted in that area and they're overcompensating for it in those behaviors. If you, if you meet someone who has those buckets filled, they're kind, they're generous, they're caring, they're abundant, they're loving, they're funny, not always, some mostly funny. Uh, they're, 
but but they're they're full humans who are overflowing in the others. When you meet someone who isn't full, one of their buckets has a hole in it or needs some work, anything will trigger them. Anything. Them not being in the right angle of the camera, them them not being uh, high enough on the shelf in their magazine, them not not being someone didn't say hello in the right tone. Anything will piss these people off and make them feel less than and make them feel like they don't have enough and make them feel like they aren't enough, which gets all this really shitty behavior that makes great reality TV shows, but it's radically unhealthy, radically unhealthy. And so I look at that and, and really, truly, I've, I've worked really, really hard. When I find some part of myself that's messy, I go stand in the mess. I don't avoid it. I don't run from it. I don't dodge it. I don't hide it. I don't put it behind a mask and pretend like it's not there. I see it. I own it. I acknowledge it. I learn how to appreciate it. And then I adjust it. That's it. And if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to see it, some people become blind all of a sudden. You're like, oh, what's that in your life? And they're like, what? I can't see anything. You're like, uh, I can see it. And I'm pretty sure you can see it because I just drew a giant red circle around it. Like it's right there, all signs pointing to it. And some are like, I don't see what you're talking about. Like, okay, are you willing to see it? Are you willing to own it? I want to go, oh shit, yeah, I definitely do that. That's me right there. That, mm-hmm, that's me. Are you willing to acknowledge it? I acknowledge that I am participating in making this happen. People go, no, I didn't do that. It wasn't me. They want to blame it somewhere or something else. And I go, no, 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 no. We all create our own lives. How did you help manifest or create this? And people come back and they go, are you telling me that I was beaten by someone and I caused that. And I'm like, no, you didn't cause that shit. That'd be a horrible thing to say to somebody. I am saying though, replaying it in your head a hundred times a day, you are causing. You can choose to replay something else. You can choose to focus on something else. You can choose to create a better meaning around it. You can choose to say, hey, that sucks. I went through it. Now what am I going to do with it? How am I going to use it to help people? There was a girl I met who her village in Rwanda, every one of her family, friends, and relatives were butchered by machete in front of her. She hid in the tall grass for like 10 days, eating grass to stay alive. She walked like 10 miles to go find a UN camp that saved her life. And I was like, this lady has every right to be pissed off at people and want to wish them harm. And instead, She chose to say, I hope that no human ever has to go through the pain and suffering I went through. I'm going to learn tools and techniques that help myself heal. And then I'm going to go heal other young people that have been through traumatic experiences. And I was like, what a champion in life, man. And so I look at that. She acknowledged it. She learned how to appreciate it. This is the hard part. She said, not where's the good in it but what can I appreciate about it? I can appreciate it made me stronger. I can appreciate that it opened my heart. I can appreciate that it pushed me to the depths I've never dreamed of feeling, but now I know I'm capable of experiencing it. It pushed me to grow. It helped me to meet all these new tools and discover all these ways I could heal myself and help others. It gave me a story that allows me to connect with people who feel that no one else can understand them. I can appreciate 
that it prepared me to do the work I need to do. Finally, adjust. You can't just stand in there your whole life and just constantly use a story as your escape clause, the why you are the way you are. Adjust it. Figure out how to do the work. Suck at it at first. Become pretty good eventually. Eventually be really good at it and eventually master it on your journey to success where you do the work to evolve and adjust yourself into the life and person you want to be. That's what I do with it. Jared, what do you wish people would ask you more? Um, I don't know. People have really good questions. Some of them are just awesome. Um, stuff I never thought of. I'm like, ooh, good one. Um, I mean, I like dumb jokes. I text people a lot of memes. I know we join Discord as a company, and that's how we can communicate with each other. And it has a, a GIF button. And I was like, donezo. I'm going to entertain the hell out of everyone with this button. Um, <laughs> I, I know sometimes that comes across as lacking business tact. I was like, I don't care. Like, if we're not enjoying the process, why are we doing it, man? Let's let's learn to love the process and have fun building a company that changes people's lives and makes the world a better place. Like, I'm, I'm cool with that. We know how to be professional. We know how to put a suit on and say that, you know, do the right stuff at the right time. But in between that, let's just enjoy the hell out of it together. And so I, I don't know. Ask me whatever you want. Um, I chat with people all the time. I, I remember I was... I, I tend to be on Instagram a lot and people pop on and ask me questions and um, it's a privilege. You know, I've, I've helped people who felt suicidal to make a call to the suicide hotline and save their life. Um, I've helped kids in India who are studying for their final exams, get into a good mindset and ace their tests. Uh, I helped a young woman who grew up in a family where women don't work and we helped get a plan together where she wanted to become a pilot and we helped her figure out where what school she'd go to and the classes she'd take and then present it in the powerful way to her parents. And they got, she never in a million years thought her dad and mom would approve of it. And they totally did. And now she's studying to be a pilot. Like, I, I just enjoy helping people conquer that mountain. So people literally reach out from all over the world. And I spend a ton of time just helping them navigate what the journey looks like. I, I tell you, Jerry, I mean, again, like every time, I mean, I, I think I'm going to either stump you or, uh, you know, but it's amazing to hear, um, to hear your heart, man. I started the podcast because of my kids. Um, I have two children, Maddox, who's 11, and he's an absolute superhero, wears whatever he wants. One side of his head is shaved. He's got dreads on the top and dreads towards the back, um, wears socks that don't match, um, wears, you know, shorts on top of jeans, uh, his sweats backwards. Um He's a kid who is so innately talented that he picks up a football and he just he knows how to throw it. He he's just so talented in those areas and he just beat, you know walks to the beat of his own drum. I got my daughter who's 14 years old, so pray for me. Um, she's 14 years old. She just found the performing arts. I mean, got the biggest heart and great, great uh, sarcastic personality. One of the best sense of humors that I've ever met in my entire life. I started the podcast because of those two. And I wanted to take iconic figures like yourself that everyone in the world looks at and says, oh, that's the greatest man, like that, that's, that's the pinnacle. And I wanted to have conversations like we had today to show my kids that there's no idols in life, that there's just icons. And those icons have phenomenal attitudes and crazy work ethics. So what advice would you have for Maddox and McKenna 
And if you yeah. could say both of their names, it would be awesome. Yeah, for Maddox and McKenna, if they want, I'd send them a copy of my book. Um, I wrote it based on a 10 year period of my life when I was trying to figure out what my ideal day would look like, how I'd want to live my day to day life in a meaning and meaningful and purposeful way. And I figured it out. And that was a formula that I've used for myself. And I've used it with people all over the world. And at that stage of life, it's important to get really conscious of what's most important to you. What are your values? What, what do you care about? And they'll evolve over, over stages of life. What I've learned, my wife and I just did this. What we realized is we always knew what our values are outside of a relationship, in our relationship. We know what our values are. And what I forgot was your values evolve at different stages of life. And so at that stage of life where they are, I get really clear on what are their values at this stage of life. And how do we make sure their day-to-day -day life is a reflection of them achieving success by living with purpose, living in alignment with what's most important to them. And the book is all the how-tos on how to make that vision actually real. Once they get that, it's a formula that you have to go back and replicate, you know, every decade of your life where you say at this stage of my life, what is now most important to me and how do I rearrange the life I live day to day to reflect the things that are most important. And, and so for them, I would say, help them create space and give them the guidelines that can help them really get clear on what's most important and make sure that their resources are being invested to their values. So make sure that their calendar, make sure that they're, if they, if they make money and save money and make sure that their resources, their time, their thought, their money, their effort, are all being vested deeply and thoroughly into the things that are absolutely highest on their values list. Jarek, it has been an absolute pleasure. I have like a thousand more questions. So it, I'm just gonna have to get you to promise to be on the podcast more. Um, yeah. So pinky up, pinky up. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure, man. I mean, you, like, you can't even advertise how good you are. Like you can't, I've, I've, and I'm going to tell every one of my friends, I'm going to see my friend Molly, uh, here in a second. Um, my, you know, my wife, my kids, every one of my friends is going to hear about you in the next couple of days, uh, from me. And they're going to hear about it. Like you need to hear this podcast, but I can't advertise how good you are, man. Like there's no marketing in the world that could live up to the fact of being able to spend time with you. And I, I, I mean that from my, from my absolute bottom of my heart, man. Thanks, and man. I just, I, I appreciate you. Um, you have been absolutely phenomenal. Now's the time. If you, if you're listening to the podcast, you're watching, um, if you're watching on YouTube, Jared, can you tell them to smash the subscribe button? Cause 84% of the people who watch the podcast aren't subscribed. So just smash the button, do it right now. Smash it. Get that button. Click it. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to thank every one of you because we've had no no paid promotion, no paid marketing, and every one of you listening has put us in the top 1% of all uh, podcasts globally. And I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for putting us in the top five most shared podcasts on Spotify with no advertising and no marketing. Um, and I'm just, I'm so excited, uh, Jarek, to be your friend for the rest of your life. Uh, I want to thank you again for being on, man, and I can't wait to have you again. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be back. Well, man, you are officially off the hot seat.